Our preacher this morning is David Birds. Many of you won't know David. He's been around in Norfolk for the last couple of years since his retirement. Prior to that, he's had 40 years of serving within the Baptist family around the country, most recently in a multicultural church within Birmingham where he felt very privileged to serve. A couple of years ago, he moved to Eccles near Attleborough so he could be closer to some of his far-flung family. And just before lockdown, he and his wife, Marion, started attending NCBC. So many of you won't know him, but we'll be looking forward to getting to know him and Marion much better once we're able to be meeting here again. So David is going to be speaking to us in a moment after Elena's uh, given us our reading this morning. But I'm going to pray for David first before he comes to speak to us. So Father, thank you for David. Thank you for his willingness to continue serving you in his retirement through preaching. Thank you for all the preparation he's put in to the message this morning. Thank you for what you're going to say through him. We pray that we will be blessed, we will be challenged, and that he too will be blessed as he speaks. So thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Our reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Praise for spiritual blessings in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in according with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of, the, of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Thanks to be to God for his word. Well, thank you to uh, Elaine and to Andy and to the rest of the team here. And I want to begin by expressing my sense of privilege at being invited to share uh, in this time together today. It's a true joy to be here, and I thank the fellowship 
for this opportunity to contribute to this um, current study series, Staying Connected. Uh, and I want to thank all those of you who are tuning in via a computer link from uh, many different venues. Over the past few weeks, we have been unpacking what might be thought of as a Christian catchphrase, in Christ. It may not be as well known as Donald Trump's, you're fired, or Victor Meldrew's, I don't believe it, or Catherine Tate's, am I bothered? But by dint of repetition and usage in the New Testament, the expression in Christ certainly qualifies as a catchphrase. Though it's not so much a slogan as a summary, it is a distillation in two words of what is a core conviction for Christians. We are what we are because we are in Christ. In, that is, not as a hammer and chisel might be found in a toolbox uh, or a hat and coat in a wardrobe, but rather as my liver and lungs are in this body. These organs' existence, their significance, their very point and purpose depend upon their being in me. They have no value or function without me, outside of me. Similarly, all that Christians have, all that we are, all that we do, all that we may become, individually as believers, collectively as his church, depends on and derives from Christ. And Jesus himself uses the analogy of his disciples being like branches in a vine. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Indeed, this is the text that provided the, the launch pad for this series. The vitality and productivity of each and every limb is utterly and crucially dependent upon its incorporation in the parent plant. Unless branches are in the vine, they are lifeless and they are fruitless. No wonder the text of the New Testament teems with the term in Christ or its derivatives in Jesus, in him, in whom. And among the various authors who were inspired by God's spirit to pen its pages, Paul employs the expression most prolifically. Not least in the introductory words of this letter to a community of Christians living in what we would call Western Turkey today, believers living in first century Ephesus, a community on the shoreline of the Aegean Sea, close to the modern city of Izmir, so recently in the news because of the earthquake uh, that rocked that region. Indeed, the phrase in Christ is found 11 times in the opening 14 verses of this letter which gives us some idea of its importance to the thrust of Paul's purpose as he puts pen to paper. Now, if you've been following along 
with our latest series of studies here at NCBC, you will know that in addition to other sections of scripture that address this topic, we've already dipped into this particular passage and considered different aspects of what the apostle teaches concerning being in Christ. I say that because I think it's helpful to know that today we're picking up on a thread of Paul's argument. Indeed, more than that, we are literally dropping into his words mid-sentence. Because in the ancient Greek language in which this letter was first written, that entire section from verses 3 uh, to 14 comprise a single sentence. Now, I can recall writing a, a similar sentence uh, once in a school essay many, many moons ago, as you can tell from the gray hairs on my head now, and the English teacher uh, scored a long line down the margin of my exercise book in red ink and added a, a caustic comment at the bottom, rewrite with more full stops. And the fact is modern Bible translators have done just that with Paul's original, adding at least eight full stops, as with the, uh, the reading that Elaine shared with us a moment ago. And some translations add as many as 16. But it seems that Paul's mind was more on God than on grammar. He was so thrilled by the things of which he wanted to speak and of the truths he desired to tell that we might imagine him hardly pausing for breath, let alone for punctuation. So what we refer to as verse 13 simply marks the place where for the tenth time now, Paul's catchphrase trips off his tongue. In whom, he writes at the beginning of this verse, in his language. In other words, in Christ. But with this repetition, Paul introduces a fresh thought in the theme that has so engrossed uh, his mind engaged his heart and employed his pen. Assurance. In Christ, all may be assured. Paul tells these followers of Jesus in Ephesus that in Christ, they now have the security, they now share the certainty of being in and belonging to his family. For in him, they possess the guarantee of enjoying that eternity when God, how is it he puts it in verse 10, brings unity to all things in heaven and on earth, in Christ. Of course, at one time, a significant number, perhaps the vast majority in this Christian community in Ephesus, would have had no such hope or dream for they had been strangers to such things. They lived in utter ignorance of this glorious prospect. As non-Jews, as Gentiles, they had been outsiders, aliens to this expectation that had been earthed in the Old Testament prophetic promise given to God's people, the Jews. Namely, that the one they called Hamashiach, the Messiah, would usher in God's kingly rule when heaven's majesty and appearance would become earth's reality and experience. 
Such a stupendous hope had indeed belonged to the people of Israel, the sons and daughters of Abraham, the chosen, as they came to call themselves. Their scriptures spoke of this plan. And that's why Paul could write of himself and his fellow Jews. In verse 11, those who realized that in Jesus of Nazareth, their long-awaited Messiah had arrived, the Christ had come. In him, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now that plan was not to wave a celestial magic wand over the shattered pieces of a broken and battered universe, nor was it to offer a cosmic-sized heavenly handkerchief and utter a divine platitude. There, there, everything will be okay in the end. It was a costly plan. It was paid for in the blood, sweat and tears of the broken body of the Son of God himself, nailed alive to a rough Roman gibbet. It was a mysterious plan, he says in verse 9 of this passage. Paul uses the Greek word mysterion, which doesn't mean weird or bizarre, but rather hidden or secret. It was a plan to which Gentiles were blind for centuries, and one which many Jews failed to fathom or to fully grasp, even when its strategy was being demonstrated publicly on the streets and within the homes and in the lives of villagers and townsfolk and city slickers of first century Palestine through the ministry of the man from Nazareth, Jesus. The plan to change the world by changing men and women in the world. And if you want a specific example of that change, then see it in the total transformation of the man who wrote this letter, a Jew called Saul, who later decided to take a Gentile name and call himself Paul. Once he was a, a zealous Pharisee from the university town of Tarsus, a man so narrow-minded he could have looked through a telescope with both eyes at once. A man so bitter he could have sucked lemons without setting his teeth on edge. A man so bigoted, so religiously self-opinionated he'd have made a die-hard reactionary conservative look like a soft-centered, easy-going liberal. He was a heresy-hunting fanatic. He was a radical, rabbinical, Jewish extremist. But look at him now. He is shackled and chained. He is incarcerated and imprisoned on death row in one of his imperial majesty, the Emperor Caesar's prisons in Rome. And yet he's intoxicated with joy. He is overflowing with confidence that he along with all those other believers living in Ephesus to whom he writes, both Jews and Gentiles, represented the beginning, just the beginning 
of the fulfillment of that plan of Almighty God to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, he writes. For this plan was never intended to be the sole prerogative or privilege of those God first chose, Jewish people like Saul. It was always integral to his plan that through them, people from every nation should find assurance that God wanted them in his family, them to know that they were fundamental to his future and thus to play their part in his plan to bring unity to all things. God intends to fill the entire cosmos, the whole creation, heaven and earth together with his presence and with his grace. And when that happens, the new world that results will be the inheritance, as Paul refers to it in verse 14, promised to the followers of Jesus. And at the moment, the people who in this life have come to know and trust God in Christ are to be the signs to the rest of the world that this glorious future is on the way. You have heard of the Me Too movement. The hashtag of a movement popularized by Alyssa Milano, though I think it was Tarana Burke who first coined the phrase. It encourages and empowers women through empathy and solidarity to work for social justice, especially in the workplace, by speaking out against sexual assault and gender-based harassment. Well, Paul here speaks of what might be given uh, the hashtag, you two, reminding his Gentile friends that they were part of a worldwide movement a company of women and men in Christ, encouraged and empowered to be agents of transformation and change, healing and wholeness in a bruised and broken world. And you also, he writes, now let's translate him like this, you too were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. How does anyone become a member of this U2 movement that brings all who do so to a place of assurance, both as to their personal salvation, the forgiveness of sins, as Paul refers to it in verse 7, or of their place and their part in this coming universal and global transformation when unity will be brought to all things in heaven and on earth in Christ? Well, he says it's in three ways. By hearing the word of truth, by believing the gospel of salvation, and by receiving the seal of the Spirit. It comes by hearing the word of truth. You see, for Christians, assurance comes first because its foundations are rooted in truth. That's why Peter could write in one of his letters, 
We didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord, Jesus, Christ. Christianity is a fact-based faith. It not only merits investigation, it welcomes it. For Christians, faith is not blind. It is illuminated, it is enlightened by God's word. As one of the poet songwriters of, of the Bible puts it in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp for my feet, it is a light on my path. John Bertram Phillips, better known to many as J.B. Phillips, was a student in Cambridge down the road from here where he learned Greek and Hebrew. A young man in his early 30s during World War II, he decided to use his time in the bomb shelters during the London Blitz to begin a translation of the New Testament into modern English, a task that took him a decade fully to complete, eventually adding a number of Old Testament books also. But afterwards, he wrote another short book entitled Ring of Truth. And he did so, he says, out of a deep concern for those who felt that the Christian scriptures were neither accurate nor reliable. And in it, he tells how the very experience of translating the Bible and the countless exciting discoveries that he made in the course of doing so deepened his conviction that they had indeed the ring of truth. He was strengthened in the conviction of the validity of the Bible and its relevance to contemporary life, not least in a time of global peril and anguish, rather like our own during this coronavirus pandemic. And being in Christ expands this experience, for he is God's word of truth fleshed out. As John the Evangelist declares in the opening chapter of his account of Jesus. And here let me read you from J.B. Phillips' translation, John 1.14. So the word of God became a human being and lived among us. We saw his splendor, the splendor of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Having a relationship with Jesus turns the Bible from dull text on a page into a window through which we see more clearly, into an amplifier through which we hear more sharply who God is and how we can be the people he wants us to be. Because in Jesus, we're not only introduced to the author, but the one who is the incarnation, the living embodiment of the life to which the scriptures call us. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther put it this way, as a mother goes to the cradle to find the child, so the believer comes to the Bible to find the Christ. And it was when these outsiders in Ephesus heard this word of truth that they began to understand that God wanted them to be insiders, that in Christ they were part of his plan to change the world by first allowing his word to change them. As Paul advised some other Gentile Christians 
in a different letter written to the people of Colossae. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Or as Eugene Peterson uh, translates these words in his message translation, let the word of Christ have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Being in Christ brings assurance by hearing the word of truth, also by believing the gospel of salvation. And actually, these aren't two different things. They're simply two sides of the same coin. But by adding this phrase, the apostle underlines the fact that hearing is about believing and that the word of truth is good news about a rescue. More often than I care to admit, uh, my childhood was punctuated by uh, my dad saying, didn't you hear what I said? As he caught me flagrantly disobeying some instruction that I'd certainly heard, but was currently blatantly ignoring. In the Bible, 99 times out of 100, the word faith is used as a verb, not as a noun. And a verb, as my English teacher drummed into me, is a doing word. These Gentiles didn't just hear the word. They started living it. They started obeying it. They started showing their trust in action. Faith became a doing word. Learning that Jesus, the Christ, had done all that was required to put them in the right with God, that they were now in him, was really good news because daily they were discovering what his rescue mission was really all about. Salvation is not just being saved from a guilty past. It's being liberated to live a godly future. Not least by being an ambassador of good news to others who have yet to find assurance about either. Being in Christ brings assurance, not only concerning what we're saved from, but what we're saved for. Salvation is not merely a point we reach, it is a path we travel. Which is why Paul encouraged the believers in Philippi, for example, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, or if you prefer, with reverence and respect. I remind you, being in Christ is an organic metaphor. It's about the life-giving sap of the vine flowing into the branches continually, strengthening them, developing them, enabling them to bear fruit. On the 29th of September, 1973, I got married to Marion. And in that moment, she became my wife and I her husband. But every day of the 47 years that have followed, have been a voyage of discovery as to what being united in marriage to Marion means. Being in Christ is not a static union. It is a dynamic one. Being in Christ brings assurance by hearing the word of truth, by believing the gospel of salvation, and by receiving the seal of the Spirit. 
In ancient Rome, soldiers of the emperor were, were branded upon enlistment to the service of the one they called in Latin, Dominus. If they were Greek speakers, they would have said, Curios. If they were English, few of them were, they would have said, Lord. But how understandable then that Paul, who undoubtedly saw such military tattoos each day of his imprisonment, should think of this as an illustration to describe the seal or the hallmark of the Holy Spirit upon those who had enlisted into the service of the one who was truly Lord. See, God demonstrates that we belong to him. He validates our adoption into his family by sending the Holy Spirit into our lives, sealing us as belonging to him. His gifts and his graces are the tangible evidence in the Christian's life of an otherwise unverifiable claim that we really are God's children. Not that our experience of God by his spirit, however exciting, however satisfying, is the last word on the matter. Our experience of the spirit now is simply, says Paul, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And the Greek word for deposit here that he uses is arabon, which in the first century had to do with commercial transactions. It was the down payment. It was a proportion of the full purchase price, which validated and secured a contract and represented the promise of the future completion of an agreement it signified. Now, last Saturday, uh, via Zoom connection to New Zealand, at one o'clock in the morning, there are 11 hours ahead of us here, Marion and I watched as our youngest daughter, Grace, got married to our new son-in-law, his name is Paul. He had previously given Grace a beautifully uh, cut diamond in the shape of an emerald. And now as he uh, slipped a, a kind of matching wedding band on her finger, he made good on that earlier promise of marriage with solemn vows before witnesses. And now the two truly are fully, legally, one. Now I tell you this because interestingly in modern Greek usage that word arabon that Paul uses here is now used of an engagement prior to marriage. The engagement ring of course is the tangible token of commitment and love which a fiancé gifts to his or her beloved as a promise of the marriage that will follow. So, if by God's Spirit we've already begun to taste of the delights of the kingly rule of Christ, the peace of sins forgiven, the joy of guilt removed, the touch of love received, and so on. And if we've also begun to benefit from the gifts of his grace, those charismatic contributions he enables in the life of his people, pastors and teachers, prophets and evangelists, those exercising the ministry of hospitality or healing or administration, thank you, Linda, or of oversight or service giving or worship leading and so on and so forth, whereby we together are growing in spiritual maturity, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, as Paul is later to write in chapter 4 and verse 13 of this letter. Then he says, do not these deposits of the Spirit's power these first installments of the Spirit's present, these down payments of the Spirit's purpose, 
invite the assurance of a guaranteed and glorious future inheritance. Because this is only the beginning. God is going to make good on his promise. He's going to complete the transaction. For our current experience of being in Christ will continue until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Some of you may remember the TV program Mastermind, originally hosted by Magnus Magnusson, who was the quizmaster. Uh, later it became John Humphreys. Contestants had a, a certain length of time within which to answer questions, first on their chosen specialist subject and then on general knowledge. And when the allotted time was up, a beeper sounded. But if the quizmaster was in the middle of asking a question, he used the phrase, I've started, so I'll finish. And the contender was then given a moment with which to offer a response. Well, Christians, then and now, have seen what God in Christ has begun to do in their lives, in his church and in his world. The evidence is that he is at work in a host of ways by his spirit, deepens the assurance that he will finish what he has started. As Paul puts it in a letter to the church at Philippi, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We live on a planet where so much is uncertain and subject to change, a world where everyone's future plans or prospects can alter in an instant, even an American president. We live at a time when things happen to us or around us which confuse or confound, leaving us as baffled and bewildered as Victor Meldrew, who existed in a constant state of disbelief. And we live in a moment when so many events could or should perturb us and disturb us. Issues and incidents that must have caused even surly schoolgirls like Catherine Tate's Lauren to be bothered. And yet, on such a planet, at such a time, in such a moment, Jesus offers us assurance. He invites us to discover and deepen our knowledge of the truth of his word, to allow the revelation it brings of the will of God and of the ways of Christ to enlighten our minds and illumine our path. He calls us to live in and to live out the good news of his rescue plan for all people and this planet, assured that when the times have reached their fulfillment, he will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And he summons us to enjoy the gifts and the graces of his spirit, experienced in a joyous measure now and realized in all their glorious fullness in the life to come. This is how we find and experience the assurance of living in Christ. Christ.